This morning, we're going to look at Luke chapter 15, so if you have, a, have your Bibles, grab them. Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to be. Every kid, everywhere, and probably every time has played one singular game. You've played it, I've played it, they were, kids were playing it this morning before Sunday school, and that is hide and seek. We've all played it. I remember, uh, you know, if you're like me, uh, the, the main goal that you had in playing hide and go seek was to hide so well that nobody could find you forever. And, and so I remember this one time, uh, we were playing at my friend's house, we were hiding and go seek, and uh, I went and I climbed in this tree. And when I say I climbed in this tree, I don't mean like I just kind of like got up to the, you know, big first branch or something. I mean I climbed so high up in this massive oak tree that the limbs began to get so small that I was afraid they weren't going to hold my weight. And I got up so high that even when they looked for me and they got to the base of the tree, it was kind of dusk, you know, and, and they would look up and they couldn't see me. I was so high up there. And, and so they found everyone else and uh, we got to the point to where even everybody that had already been found was now looking for me, which I felt really good about. And I watched them from the top of the tree look around and look under the porch and look, on, look in the shed and, and look under the wheelbarrow and, and exhaust every possible option. And then some of them began to go inside. Some of them began to quit and, and go inside until there was only a handful of people left. And I was starting to get nervous and nobody's going to find me. And so I climbed down a little bit. And they kept looking and kept looking and couldn't find me. So I started kind of shaking some branches. Bounce a little bit. <laughs> they still couldn't find me. So I climbed down a little bit more and let my legs hang down and kind of stick it out so that they might see it. And they walked by and kind of make some noises so that they could finally find me. And finally they did. And what I realized in that moment was that, yes, I wanted to have the best hiding spot, but I didn't want to be lost forever. I wanted to be found. I wanted to be found. And I think in the same way, every one of us in this room, every one of us, our, our lives look different. The things we do are different. And every one of us in different ways, deep down, know we're lost, but don't want to stay that way. We know deep down that we're lost, but we don't want to stay that way. What, what do I mean by lost? I mean that we feel like there is there's something missing, like we haven't quite arrived yet, like there's more out there, like this can't be all that there is. You see, lost just means that you're not content, you're not settled, that you're just one or two steps away from finally arriving at happiness. Lost just means that there's some home out there you've yet to discover, a belonging you've not quite yet reached. You see, we all don't want to remain lost. We want to be found. Harry Potter is a great example of this. If you've read the books or seen the movies, um, Harry was living with, uh, with his aunt and uncle because his parents were dead. And, and Harry uh, had the worst aunt and uncle in the world. Am I right? They're awful people. And he's living in this closet underneath the steps. And his, his, uh, his cousin is the worst to him. He bullies him, uh, treats him horribly. His, his, his you know, guardians, his aunt and uncle, are neglecting him. And it's just truly miserable and truly awful. But yet that was his home. That's where he thought he belonged. That's all at least he knew. But yet, though he was home, he was lost. And it wasn't until his 11th birthday when this giant man named Hagrid comes and rescues him to take him to Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry where he shows him that he's a wizard and that he belongs in this other community, that he belongs with these other people that are like him, a different kind of community that some might call family. And when he went to school and he found these friends and he found these new bonds and, and he felt like he belonged for the first time and then the end of the semester came and everybody was talking about they were going home. 
And Harry says, well, not really. I'm not really going home because he was home. At Hogwarts, he found a home. You see, all of us, we are born lost. We are born alienated. We are born homeless. And we are all seeking to be found, seeking to to arrive This morning, we're going to talk about a story, the most popular story that Jesus probably ever told, the story of the prodigal son. And the story shows us that there are two primary ways that every one of us in this room have tried to be discovered, tried to be found, but always remain lost. They never work. This story shows us two ways to be lost and only one way to be found, the one true way home. Our story begins with two brothers who couldn't have been more different, each one showing us a different way to be lost. Luke 15, starting in verse 11, the words of our God written by Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, say this. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So this younger brother goes to his father and he, and he asks his father for his share of the inheritance. Now I want you to notice two things about this. Two things about asking for your share of the inheritance. One, uh, at this time, it would have, for him as the younger brother, he would have gotten one-third of all of the property. He would have gotten one-third. The other two-thirds would have gone to his older brother. But I also want you to realize that this father could not have just gone to his son and said, here, son, I'm going to write you a check. Here you go. No, what, his his his. His money was in assets, it was in property, it was in livestock. And so in order for this father to grant this request for the younger brother to get his inheritance now, he had to go sell off land and sell livestock and sell property in order to accumulate the funds to give to his youngest son. The second thing I want you to notice, probably more striking, is this reality of the nature of their request. This younger brother goes to his father. He says, Father, I want what's coming to me. I want my inheritance now. But when do you get your inheritance? When do you get it? You, you get it when your parents die, right? You get an inheritance when those parents, grandparents, whoever it is, die, and then it passes to you. And so this son, this younger brother, is essentially asking for his inheritance. Now he's saying, Father, I wish you were dead. Dad, I wish you were dead because I don't want you. I just want your stuff. You see, this younger brother wanted the stuff. He, he, he thought the stuff, he thought the, the money the, that would make him happy. He thought if he could control the father's stuff without the father, he'd be happy. He thought if he could get out from under the, the thumb of his father's guidance, if he could get out of the, the rules of his father's household and go off and do his own thing, then he would be happy. He didn't want rules. He wanted freedom. Give me what's coming to me. I wish you were dead. And it's interesting that the father graciously and kindly gives the younger brother exactly what he asks for. He gives him his inheritance early. And so this younger brother, this son, he takes off that money and he goes into a far country. And with this newfound wealth, newfound wealth what does he do? But he parties. He spends it on, on reckless living. And the text tells us that he squanders it. He squanders all of this money on reckless living. Essentially, he goes and he, and he parties and he, he buys lavish, expensive, fine food and drink and, and he hires prostitutes and he buys fine clothes. He goes and he lives it up. He does whatever he wanted to do. He does all the things that he couldn't do in his father's house. He goes and he's finally him. 
He's finally an individual, and he goes and he does all the things that he wanted to do, whatever he thinks will make him happy. You see, this younger brother was lost in his own home, and he thought if he could just leave, that he could find meaning and purpose and, and a life that was full if he could just have his father's money and go on his own. The first way we try to be found but always remain lost is by running away from God. That's what this tells us. That we, we think if we run away from God, like this younger brother, many of us think that the path to happiness, the path to fulfillment, to a full life is through running away from religion, running away from moral conformity, running away from traditional expectations, and running toward self-discovery and individual freedom. I want to be me. You think that, you know, nobody can tell me who I am. Nobody can tell me what I should do. My truth is my truth, and if I, this makes me happy, I'm going to do it because it makes me happy. And I should be able to seek whatever that is, and if it makes me happy, it doesn't matter if my parents frown upon it or my teachers or societal standards frown upon it. If it makes me happy, if it works for me, then it should be good. And that's what the other younger brother thinks. The younger brother, like many of us, think that it's out there somewhere. That if he could just go get his hands on it, he'll be happy. You see, some of you in this room, you think that if you got more stuff, you'd be happy. You'd arrive. You'd be found. Some of you think that if you just had more credibility, more, more toys, more gadgets, more nicer cars, bigger cars, bigger house, then you'd be happy. And so what do you do? You live your life and, and you try to over, you overwork to get that promotion so you can get that raise so you can take out more debt and buy a bigger house and a nicer car. And you think that if you get those things, it'll make you happy. You'll arrive. You won't be lost anymore. You won't feel incomplete anymore. You'll have made it. Some of you think that if you can just finally express yourself, if you can finally express your individuality, you'll be fine. Some of you think that if you can finally come out of the closet, and be accepted fully for your sexuality, then, then you'll have made it. You'll finally feel whole. Some of you think that if you can just dress the way you want, or live the way you want, or talk the way you want, listen and express yourself without judgment, then if you can just be you, then you'll have arrived. When Jesus tells this story, he's talking to two groups of people. He's talking to the, the religious people, the quote-unquote good people, and the sinners, the, the bad people, the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners. And the younger brother is really a, a, a stand-in, a description for those bad people, those quote-unquote sinners. Those people who society looks down on, the, down their nose at. Those people in society who, who are, have escaped, have, have tried to find fulfillment and have found themselves instead trapped in addiction. Or trapped in alcoholism or trapped in sexual promiscuity, or pornography, or drugs, or a revolving door of failed relationships, always thinking and believing that the next one, the next one will make you happy. And so this younger brother, like us, we, we escape into these things thinking that we'll, they'll, they'll fix us. But yeah, what happens is we get trapped in a cycle. We get trapped in this cycle of addiction and guilt and regret and failure. And then we try to change our behavior, right? We try to fix it and say, you know what? <laughs> this addiction that I'm in, this guilt I'm in, this things that I'm doing that didn't make me happy. And so we try to climb our way out, claw our way out. We try to fix it. And, and it never works. We always just go back to it. And so it's this endless cycle. And we fail again and again. And we just remain lost. And all of those things in your life, 
all of those things, whatever it is for you, something different for all of us, all those things in your life that promise to make you happy. That if you just had this, just had acceptance, just had more money, more power, bigger job, bigger car, whatever, whatever it is, if you just had it, you'd be happy. You realize they've all lied to you. They've all lied to you and they've never delivered. Probably no one has said it better than C.S. Lewis when he said, hey, I can see you now. Hey. C.S. Lewis said it this way. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. Isn't that fascinating? Don't we often think the opposite, that Christians are like snobs who can't do anything? Wouldn't it seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak? You see, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. You see, we are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We're over here playing in the mud like it's so great. And God's like, Hawaii? You want to go? No, I'm good. That's how we are. Tom Brady in 2005 uh, had just won his third Super Bowl ring. Now he's on like seven. But he had just won his third Super Bowl ring, and he was being interviewed. And in that interview, he says really two statements that are quite fascinating, and I think we might identify with them. Tom Brady says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there is something greater out there for me? He's like, I don't get it. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? Some people, he, then he says, you know, some people would say I've arrived. Some people would say, you know, you're only 27 years old and you've reached your goal. You've reached the pinnacle. You've got there. And then Tom Brady says, but there's got to be more than this. Three-time Super Bowl winner, two-time Super Bowl MVP, and there's got to be more than this. Millionaire. Got to be more than this. You see, I think many of us in this room are like Tom Brady. Not that you've won a Super Bowl or even could get close. Not that you're famous or, or millionaires. But you've searched the world. You've tried everything. You've tasted everything. You've spent money to buy things that you thought would make you happy. Maybe you've achieved great success. You've done things you know maybe you probably shouldn't have done because they're probably not good and healthy for you, but they promised to make you happy, and so you gorged yourself on fine food. You've gotten drunk more times than you can count. You've gone from relationship to relationship to relationship to relationship to relationship to relationship, thinking that one of them will make you happy. And maybe now you're like Tom Brady and you're wondering, man, there's got to be more than this. There's got to be something more than this. That I'm so empty and so lost. Got to be something more. And if that's you, maybe you're lost in the same way that the younger brother is lost. Who thought that he could just go, go do his own thing, take the money and go, he'd be happy. You see, self-discovery and individualism, doing whatever you wanted, living your life on your terms, leaves you lost. It doesn't promise, it promises, but it doesn't deliver. And you're wondering, is there more than this? Is there anything better? The younger brother finds himself in this awkward spot, this spot that we find ourselves in where it's is there more than this he's partied away all of his money he's spent it all on reckless living he's wasted it all on prostitutes and partying all these things and chasing happiness and now he's run out of money and he's found himself in, in need of a job and so he the only job he can find is because there's a famine in the land the only job he can find is working with pigs and so he is now in the pig pen 
with the pigs in it. He can't afford any food, so he eats the leftover pig slop that the pigs got, and he doesn't have anywhere to sleep, and so he just sleeps there with the pigs. And then, because he's in this horrible spot, he makes a bold but brave and life-changing choice. He chooses to go home. This younger brother has chosen before to wish his father dead and take his inheritance now. This brother has squandered all of that wealth that he took early. This brother went off seeking fulfillment but found only disappointment, but now is going home. Read with me in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread that I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This younger brother knew that everybody in his hometown, his father and all these people that worked for him and everybody, he knew that they would shun him. They knew that they would mock him. He knew that he must be dead in his father's eyes and dead in the eyes of those in his community. But he thought, or at least he hoped, maybe that his father would give him a job. Maybe his father would give him a job and let him work off some of the debt uh, of, of the inheritance that he took early. Maybe he can pay it back and maybe slowly work his way back into his father's good graces. And so what does he do? He rehearses this apology speech. He rehearses the things he's going to say. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm not worthy to be called your son. Hire me. He rehearses this speech and then he gets up out of the pig pen and he heads home. Now the, the camera pans. The camera's on the younger brother and it, and it pans over to the father. This father who was wished dead and just his son only wanted him for his money. And we find that the father is kind of sitting on his front porch, kind of pacing back and forth like he does every morning. And he's looking out over the field at the edge of the horizon like he does every day. But this day is different because this day the father's sitting on the porch. He's kind of pacing back and forth and he sees out over the horizon a, a figure. Something standing way out there coming this direction. And he, and he looks and he can't quite make out who it is or, or what it is, but it's getting closer. And so he strains his eyes and he keeps looking and his heart begins to beat a little bit faster. And he doesn't want to get his hopes up, but he wonders, maybe, maybe that's my boy. And as the, as the figure gets a little bit closer, he notices that it is. It is, in fact, his son. And so what does the father do? He does something that no Middle Eastern man in that time would do. He hikes up his robe and he bares his legs and that man takes off running. He is after his son. And the text tells us, the Greek tells us that he falls on his neck. He tackles his boy. He wraps him up in this bear hug and he begins to kiss him and love on him and shout things. And now what is the son doing? The son, he say, he's trying to say his apology speech, right? Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father's not having it. The father is not willing to let his son grovel. The father is not willing to let his son beg and go through this big, long speech and work his way back into the family. He doesn't do that. But what does the father do? He says, my son is home. He was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. He's home. Somebody get my robe. Bring it up here. Somebody get my ring. Bring it up here. Put the robe on him. Put my ring on his finger. Somebody go kill the biggest cow we got because we're going to have a party today because my son is home. He is ready to celebrate 
He is not willing to let his son beg and grovel to come back into his family. He is ready to say, I will cover your nakedness and your dirty pig filthy robes with the robes of my office. I will put my ring on your finger because you are my son and you are home. And we are going to celebrate. And everyone in this town, everyone in this community is coming to the biggest party we've ever had to celebrate. My son is home. The message is this, that God loves his children so much that no matter how big or bad our sins are, he's always ready to welcome us home. That no matter how big, how bad, how ugly, how unforgivable we think our sins are, he is always ready to welcome us home. You see, the younger brother knew that in his father's house there was food to spare. But he was shocked and surprised to discover that there was grace to spare all the more. You see, there is no evil that the Father's love cannot pardon or cover. There is no sin that is any match for his grace. Jesus is telling this story to show that God's love is so big that the Father runs and pounces on us before we have a chance to clean up. God's love embraces us before we have a chance to fix our lives to clean up, to get better. God's love is so big that it comes for us before before we can even make all the promises about how we're going to change and do better. Some of you in this room right now, you're younger brothers. You've been living lives running away from God. You've been living immoral lives of sin and rebelling, not caring about the things of God, only caring about yourself and what you think will make you happy. But understand this. If that's you, God is not right now up in heaven looking down on you in revulsion and anger. He is not crossing his arms, shaking his head, wagging his finger. He's not, that's not what he's doing. That's not what he's doing. No, the, the Father's heart is he's looking out across the field on the edge of the horizon, and he is longing and waiting with bated breath for you to crest the horizon and come home. And He's not up there going, man, I'm so disappointed in you. How could you? He's up there saying, just come on back. I got you. Just come on back home. I got you. I'll take care of all of it. That's what the father's heart's like, not willing to let us grovel, but just wants to bear hug us and bring us home and to say, you'll never be lost again once you come home. That's one way to be lost, but there's another way to be lost. The way of the older brother. Real good in verse 25 with me. Now his older son was out in the field. And he came and drew near to the house. And he heard music and and dancing. And and he called to one of his servants and he asked what these things meant. And and he said to him, your brother's come home. Your, Your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But this older brother, he was angry, and he refused to go into the party. His father comes out and, and entreated him, right? He begged him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, when this son of yours came, you de- devoured our, your property with prostitutes? You, you, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother of yours was, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. 
the older brother shows us a second way. Many of us in this room try to, try to be found, try to find fulfillment, happiness, but also remain lost. You see, you can, you can be a good person and still be lost. You can be good, you can be moral, you can be very religious, you can give to charity, you can be a good man, a good woman, a good spouse, a good father, a good mother, and still be just as lost as the younger brother, just in a different way. You see, the older brother hears the news that his father goes out and running to, to embrace his little brother. That the father put his robe on him and his finger and a ring on his finger and he's killing the fattened calf. And the older brother is not filled with the same love and joy and excitement that the father is. No, when the older brother sees this all go down, he is filled with rage. He's ticked off. The older brother sees this party going down to celebrate and he simply goes out and crosses his arm and throws a pity party like my three-year-old might. And so the father notices the father notices that his son is not at the party. So the father's going to leave the party, go out into the field and find his older son and go to him and, and say, son, why aren't you in the party? Come celebrate with us. Your brother's home. But the older brother's just angry. But why? Why is he so angry? He's so angry because everything that the father just gave to the younger brother, all uh, uh, the robe and the ring and killing the fattened calf and and if he's going to restore him as a son, that means that one-third of all that the father owns has to go back to give him a new inheritance. And so all of that money came out of the pocket of the older brother. You see, he's footing the bill. His future inheritance is footing the bill. And he was not having it. Like the, like the younger brother, this older brother, he just wanted the father's stuff without the father too. He didn't care about the father. He just wanted the things. He wanted control of the stuff, but he does it in a different way. He doesn't get control and find fulfillment by running and leaving and going and, and sowing his wild oats. No, he finds, he finds that he's going to find his happiness through obedience, by never disobeying the father, by doing everything right, by being good, by being a good person, a good son. The older brother thought that if he was good enough, that if he was the perfect son, that he would earn the father's respect and he would gain control of the father's stuff and then find happiness the, the older brother says all oh, these many years i've served you in the greek it's the word doulos it's the word slave all oh, these many years i've slaved for you man every day for this boy has been a slave labor working for his father because all he cared about was being good enough to control his father's stuff and though the father begs him come into the party he doesn't the older brother stays outside, alienated, cut off from his family, angry, and lost. See, the lostness of the older brother is scary because you can have it and not realize it. Younger brother lostness, we know. Like, we get it and understand and can see when you're running from God. We know when we're living contrary to the things of God. But when you're lost like the older brother, sometimes you don't realize it because you're in church every Sunday. You see, older brother lostness is a... This is what it is. It is a, a deep-seated belief that my goodness, my religious commitment, my going to church, my being a good person, my always doing the right thing will make God love me. Make him bless me. It will make him answer my prayers and take me to heaven and it will keep bad things from happening to me. You see, there are some of you in this room right now that if you were to die and stand before God in heaven and, and Jesus looked at you and he said, why should I let you into my heaven? That you would... And in all the sincerity in the world, look at God and say, well, God, you should let me in because I've tried my best to be good. 
I've done my best to, to work hard for you. I've done my best to, to be a good person. I was a good dad. I was a good mom. I worked hard for my family. I worked hard and I, I was generous with my, with my money and I cared for people. God, you should let me in because I've tried my best to be good and I read the Bible. And God will look at you and say, depart from me for I never knew you. If you think you can make it into the Father's house because you're a good person or do religious things or because you go to church, you are in for a rude awakening. There's a book called Christless Christianity and in it the author poses a question, what would the world look like? If the devil had his way, if Satan, if the devil could do whatever he wanted to in the world, what would the world look like? Some of us hear that question and we say, oh man, there'd be strip clubs on every corner and, and bars everywhere and, and people would be beating each other up and there'd be violence everywhere and drugs everywhere and people would just be hurt and, and, and addiction and all this. And he says, no, it wouldn't look like any of that. He says, if the devil had his way in the world, there would be a church on every street corner and every Sunday, everyone would be in attendance. And they would hear sermons about how you are to love your neighbor. They would hear sermons about how you are to be a good father or a good mother and work hard. They would hear sermons about how you got to share and be kind. But they would never hear stories about how they were lost or needed a savior. Because the devil wants to fool us into thinking that we can be good enough for a holy God. See, the devil, <laughs> the devil wants that because there's two ways to be lost. There are two ways to go to hell. The first way to go to hell is to be really, really bad. Being really, really bad will send you straight to hell. The second way to go to hell is to be really, really good. Be a really, really good person. Do all the right things, and you'll find yourself in hell. You can be like the younger brother and live however you want. Live your truth. Live your life, best life on your own happiness. Shake off the chains of society and, and your family or whoever else, and it will send you to hell. Or you can be like the older brother, and you can do everything right. Always obey. You see, hell will be full of church-going, charity-giving, good, honest, hard-working people. Both are lost. So what are we to do? If we are lost, how do we get found? Whether we're lost like the younger brother or the older brother, how do we get found? If, it's, if we don't get found through self-discovery and living my life however I want, if we don't get found through obedience or being a good person, how do we get found? How do we come home? How do we enter into this feast, this party that the Father is throwing and sit at his table and get his robe and his ring? How do we get it? Well, you may not have noticed, but there's something missing in our story. There's something missing in the story. You see, this parable is actually uh, one of three parables that are told together to make a point. In the first parable, it's called the parable of the lost sheep, and in it, this guy loses his sheep, and he goes and he finds it. He goes and he looks for the sheep, and he finds it, and he puts it on his back, and he brings it home, and when he's home, there's all this rejoicing. The second parable is the out of the lost coin, and this man loses his coin, and he goes out, and he looks for the coin, and when he finds the coin, he gets it, and he brings it home, and there is much rejoicing. And in the third parable, the parable of the lost son, there's a younger brother who leaves his father's home, and he's lost. But there's no one to go look for him. There's no one seeking him. No one goes and brings him home. There's no rejoicing because the older brother is just angry when he sees him. You see, when something or someone is lost, the only way that they're truly found is when somebody goes looking for him. We've got a lost and found here, and it is full of stuff. The reason it's full of stuff is because nobody's come looking for it. So the question is, who should have went and got the, the younger brother? Who should have went and found the, the lost son? 
And the answer is easy. It's obvious. The older brother should have. The older brother, when he learned that his brother had ran away, he should have said, Father, I'm going to leave home. I'm going to go to this far country, and I'll find my little brother, and I'm going to bring him home. And if he has spent all of his inheritance, as I'm sure that he has, I will pay myself his way back into our family. That's what the older brother should have done. He should have went and sought his little brother and brought him home and paid for him to come back in. But we don't get that in our story. We don't get a true older brother. So why does Jesus tell this story, leaving out the seeker? Jesus left it out because he was showing the good religious people, the church-going people, that they failed. That they failed. That it was their job to go and minister and to love and to serve the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the drug addicts and the alcoholics and the porn addicts and whoever else. That we were to go love them and serve them and care for them and bring them to God and then rejoice. But instead, like the older brother, they were more concerned with their own goodness and piety and holiness instead of actually doing what God wanted them to do. And so we don't get the older brother we need in this parable, but thank God we do get the older brother we need in real life. See, we get Jesus. We get Jesus who is our true elder brother, who Jesus most literally said to the Father, I will leave home. I'm going to leave heaven itself and I'll go to this far country called earth. I will find those lost children of yours and whatever it costs, even if it costs me my own life, even if I have to take their punishment on myself, I will gladly pay it to restore them to our family. You see, when you were lost, Jesus comes to find you. And he comes and he puts us on his back and he carries and brings us home. He pays the price to bring us back to the Father. He doesn't wait for us to come groveling to him. He doesn't wait for us to clean up or get our life right or get our act together. He comes, finds us, and he brings us home to deliver us. And if you are still lost, he has come for you. Let me explain to you what this actually looks like. Once upon a time, there was an ancient king who was the fairest, most loving king that the world had ever known. And it was discovered that that somebody was stealing from the king's treasury. And so the king made a decree that whoever was discovered to be stealing from the treasury of the king would receive ten lashes. But the thievery kept happening. And it kept happening, so he upped the, upped the punishment to twenty lashes. But the thievery kept happening. Someone was continuing to steal from his treasury, and so he upped it to thirty lashes. But it kept happening, and so he upped it to forty lashes, which was an effective death sentence for whoever was caught. But two days after the king had decreed forty lashes for the thief... An effective death sentence. Two days after, it was discovered that it was the king's own daughter who was stealing from his treasury. And so a question arose in the land, how, how in the world could the king kill his own daughter? How in the world could the king kill his own daughter? Some people in the kingdom thought that the king would pardon his own daughter because he was so loving. But then they thought, how would that be fair? Other people in the kingdom thought that he would kill his own daughter because that was just. But then they thought, but yeah, but how would that be loving? Well, the king pondered it, and he decided. The law was clear. His decree was clear. Whoever had stolen from him deserved to die. And so three days later, the king's own daughter was brought out before the entire kingdom as a public spectacle for the whole kingdom to watch her be beaten and killed. And she was laid over a stump, and the back of her shirt was ripped off. The executioner steps back with the whip, And he raises his hand to bring it down upon the king's daughter. And right before he hits her, there's a voice in the back that yells, stop! And everyone stops to look. 
And the king in the back begins to walk down the aisle of people. And he comes to his daughter. And the king takes off his shirt, throws it on the ground. And he wraps his arms and his body around the body of his little girl. And he looks over his shoulder at the executioner and he says, now hit her. And the executioner back here, he says, but sir, I cannot hit her without hitting you. You're in the way. And the king says, the, pun- the law is clear. The punishment must fall. Now do what must be done and hit her. Hit my daughter. And so the king shielded his daughter from every single lash and died upon the stump. You see, Jesus did not just die for you. He died instead of you, shielding you from every blow of the wrath and justice of God that we deserve. If you want to know how big of a deal sin is to God, whether you have the sins of a younger brother or older brother, if you want to know how big of a deal sin is to God, all you've got to do is look to the cross where he deals with injustice with justice. And if you want to know how big of a deal you are to God, look to the cross where he takes the punishment in your place. You see, God is so just that punishment had to be made for sin, but so loving that he makes the payment himself. He took every sin of yours, every past sin, every present sin, and sins you haven't committed yet, and he laid them upon his son to bear the penalty in your place, to bring you back into his family so that you wouldn't have to be lost, that you can be found, that you wouldn't have to be dead, that you can be made alive. But here's what we know. We know that the death of Jesus wasn't the end of Jesus because on the cross, do you remember what he says? On the cross, he's hanging up there. His, his, his lungs are filling with blood as he's being tortured and, and receiving wrath from God. And what does he say? He says, it is finished. But what does he not say? He doesn't say, I am finished. And if Jesus wasn't finished, you're not finished. If Jesus isn't finished, you're not finished because, because we know. We know Jesus wasn't finished because to this very day, there is a hole in the ground. There is an empty tomb on the side of a mountain where the stone was rolled away and the body's not there. Because God took the lifeless corpse of Jesus and he brings him back to life. And if the power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then you're not lost If that resurrection power lives in you, then you're not lost. No matter how difficult things have been in your life, no matter how many mistakes you've made, no matter how many trials you face, if the resurrection of Jesus is true, then nothing else in your life ever gets the last word. You might have been dead, but in Christ you're made alive. Some of you think, that you are stuck in your lostness forever. Some of you right now believe, you, you, but Pastor, I do not believe you. I am stuck and I cannot get out. I will be lost forever. That you have run so far away from God that there is no hope for rescue. Or that you're so close to church and religion that there's no way anybody will be okay with you coming to him. Some of you think you are so lost you'll never be found. So dead you can never be made alive. Some of you are in the pig pen and you think that there's no way that the Father will let you come to him now because you're filthy. But that's not true. An old theologian once said that the resurrection of Jesus means that the worst thing in your life is never the last thing in your life. I want to show you uh, some things this morning that if the resurrection of Jesus is true, it means that they don't get the last word. The first is guilt. 
if the resurrection of Jesus is true, guilt, your guilt in your life doesn't get the last word. And you say to me, Brent, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what, where I've been. You don't know the things that I'm into or the things in my past or even my present. You don't know what I've done. You don't understand how much guilt I have, how it's built up and how it cripples me. There is no way that guilt doesn't get the last word in my life. And what I would say to you, what I would say to you is that the problem is not that I don't understand what you've done. The problem is you don't understand what Jesus did for you in your place. Because the Bible says that Jesus took our condemnation so much so that for you, if you are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. And that means that guilt doesn't get the final word. For some of you, it's not guilt, but it's addiction. But if the resurrection of Jesus is true, it means addiction does not get the last word in your life. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, he released a power so great that it could overthrow the grave itself. And that means that no matter what havoc your addiction has wreaked in your life, no matter how many relationships your sin has destroyed, when you call upon the name of Jesus, you can realize a power that can restore all that sin has broken in your life, which means addiction doesn't get the last word either. But for some of you, it's not, it's not guilt or addiction, it's pain. And if the resurrection of, tr- of Jesus is true, it means that pain doesn't get the last word in your life either. This has been a difficult couple years for us, right? Some of you have lost loved ones to the pandemic or to other tragedies. Some of you have lost parents and you're still grieving. Some of you have even lost a child. Some of you have lost long friendships uh, or, or relationships over some stupid argument or disagreement over on Facebook. Some of you have watched loved ones get cancer or Alzheimer's, and you've watched them slowly fade away. But guys, if the resurrection is true, it means Jesus is coming back for us. It means that death is just the beginning, that, that a resurrection is coming, and that we're just going to end chapter 1 and then start the whole rest of our lives. D.A. Carson said that you are not suffering from anything so bad right now that a good resurrection can't fix it. Amen? And if the resurrection is true, it means that pain doesn't get the last word. But for some of you, it's not pain, it's despair. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, it means despair doesn't get the last word either. As long as Jesus is alive, there's hope for you. When you feel that the, the darkness, that the darkest of nights is closing in on you, that everything is falling in, you can bring the light of the resurrection of Jesus flooding into your life. Listen, here's the deal. Here's the worst case scenario for your life. The worst case scenario of your life, if your hope is in Jesus, and only if your hope is in Jesus, the worst case scenario for your life means a resurrection and everlasting life, which means despair doesn't get the last word either. And finally, if the resurrection of Jesus is true, it means that death doesn't get the last word. Resurrection isn't something that happened to Jesus only. It is something that happened to Jesus first. And if you belong to Jesus, it's going to happen to you. Because one day, Jesus is going to walk up to your tomb if you're in Christ. And he is going to say your name to your rotting corpse. And he's going to say your name and say, live. And you are going to climb up out of the dirt. And that old busted knee ain't going to be busted anymore. And that weak side ain't going to be weak anymore. And you're going to run and not get tired. You're going to walk and not grow faint. And the life that God has always wanted for you, the world and the kingdom that God has always wanted for you for ultimate joy and ultimate fulfillment will finally be yours and you will feast at the at the table of the father with all of your new family forever because death doesn't get the last word in 2018 billy graham the evangelist died and every newscast was talking about billy graham and his death and there was an old quote that resurfaced from billy graham and billy graham said years earlier 
One day, you will hear that Billy Graham died. Don't you believe it? In that moment, I will be more alive than ever. I will have just changed addresses. Because if the resurrection of Jesus is true, death doesn't get the last word. You see, no matter how lost you are, no matter how sinful or broken you are, no matter how good you think you are, whether you've been off partying with prostitutes and wild living, whether, whether you have been the most immoral person or whether you've been filled with moral goodness, if you are lost, the death and resurrection of Jesus can rescue you and bring you home. He left on a mission, and Jesus did not leave this earth until that mission was complete. I want you to notice something, though. At the end of that story, one of the brothers is saved, is found, and one is lost. One of the brothers is found, and one is lost. It is the bad brother who is found. It is the bad brother who is saved, and it's the good, moral, upright brother who's lost, who doesn't go into the party. And that's because of one simple truth. The only way that you can be rescued by Jesus is to know you're lost. The only way to be rescued by Jesus is to know that you need rescuing. It doesn't require that you fix your life. It doesn't require that you get everything right. It doesn't matter that you change right now. What is required is that you know you need a Savior. You know you need to be rescued. And so here's my question for you this morning. Do you know you're lost? Do you know you're lost? Do you want to be found? Do you know that you're so high up in that tree that no matter how many people are searching for you, there ain't nobody going to find you? Are you so lost that, that you realize that nobody's coming and nothing's going to fix it? And are you, are you wanting to maybe start climbing down that tree a little bit and shaking a branch and sticking a leg out and start making some noises that you can be found? Are you ready to stop being lost and trying to find your own way in this world, are you ready to be found and experience the joy and life change that will ne- make you never be the same? Do you want to take a chance? Do you want to take a chance that the claims of this Jesus guy, that this true older brother, aren't crazy? That maybe the claims of this resurrection aren't crazy, maybe they're actually true. Because if the resurrection of Jesus is true, and we have every logical, factual, historical reason to believe that it is true, not some blind faith, we have all the evidence in the world we need to believe it's true. And if it is true, it changes everything. If it's true, you don't have to remain lost, you can come home. And so my question for you is, do you want to come home and enter this family? Do you want to find joy everlasting? Because the Father's ready to throw a feast. He's ready to run and bear hug you and embrace you and bring you home. He's, he's looking out over the horizon and he's wondering, are you ready to come home? He's ready to rescue you. Are you ready to stop hiding? Because deep down you know you want to be found. Are you ready to be rescued? Bow your heads with me.